Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to Reading Our Times, the podcast that explores the books and the ideas that are shaping our world. Listen with us, and we'll introduce you to conversations about race, language, war, mental health, the future of humanity, and the meaning of life. History will remember 2020 as the year in which the COVID pandemic wreaked social and economic havoc across the world and catalyzed one of the most intense scientific programs in history, as scientists threw everything at developing a vaccine for the virus. It will also, however, be remembered as the year of George Floyd's murder in America and of the explosion of the Black Lives Matter campaign and of the prominence of race in the media agenda. On the surface of it, these themes are entirely separate. But in actual fact, the relationship between science and race, and that word is in scare quotes throughout the episode, is a long and rather ugly one. Angela Saini is a science journalist, broadcaster, and a former fellow of the Massachusetts Institute for Technology, She has written and presented widely on science and is the author of three books, the most recent of which explores the murky past and the worrying present of science and race. And it's called Superior, The Return of Race Science. Angela, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. I think many people will be dimly aware of the relationship between science and race in the 19th century, but we do need to begin there, if only to get the background to the re-emergence of so-called race science more recently. So can you tell us a bit about how ideas of biology and colonialism came together to form race science? Well, we could start even earlier, really. We could start at the very birth of modern Western science during the Enlightenment, when the Western world was bound up in slavery and colonialism. And out of that came empiricism and the modern scientific method as we have it now. And it's no surprise then that whatever political ideas existed at the time were influencing how the bedrock of Western science was developed. So there are a number of assumptions. One was that we weren't necessarily one human species. In fact, very few people at that time, I think, believed that we were one human species. They thought that there were different kinds of human. So these social and political ideas were injected into the very first boundaries that were set, and that's where you get the idea of race becoming hardened. It is striking that if you read David Hume or Mm. Immanuel Kant or Voltaire, these great minds of the Enlightenment, Mm. these independent thinkers, in all of them, you will find statements that are more or less straightforwardly racist. Yeah, and that was part of the way of thinking at the time. Like I say, it was informed by colonialism and slavery. There's a wonderful book by Olivet Otele called African Europeans, which explores how this idea of blackness came to be wedded with the idea of being African and in turn also wed with the idea of being a slave in the centuries just running up to the Enlightenment. So it wasn't there forever, obviously, but at that particular moment in history, the West was taking charge of the world. It was seizing power. 
And it was dehumanizing others. And the ways in which it was dehumanizing others became married to these ideas of superficial difference. Let's explore how Darwin feeds into this story. Darwin is a particular hero of mine, and he descends from abolitionist stock. So in one regard, he has a very strong commitment to monogenesis, to the idea that we're all descended from we're all of one race, we're all descended from you know, shared ancestors. But at the same time, evolution by natural selection has a deleterious impact on this concept of race in the later 19th century, doesn't it? Yeah. So on the one hand, you're right that Darwin's ideas about evolution shows that we have a shared ancestor. We're all part of the same human family. But at the same time, and I think this speaks to the politics of the time in the way that even the scientists it is so hard to extricate themselves from politics that he couldn't let go of this idea that there was a hierarchy of races, that there were certain races that he considered to be lower down or inferior that were doomed to die out. And when he travelled the world, this was his observation. He was looking at cultural difference (laughs) and he was applying his own kind of Western notions of superiority and civilizational superiority to what he was observing. And then that became pumped into his biology. So it's difficult because I think when we look at history, we want to be able to say these were the good guys and these were the bad guys. These are the ones that we should condemn and these are the ones that we should keep. It's very hard to think of it that way because it was part of the intellectual atmosphere of the time. And that's not to say that there weren't people that challenged Darwin on this. There were. There were thinkers, even in the 17th century, who didn't like to think about human beings in this way, that saw the flaws in this way of thinking, but they weren't the ones who were driving the mainstream agenda in biology. Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, plays a particularly important role in this story, doesn't he? Yeah, so Darwin's family, parts of it were quite illustrious and Galton was one of them. We remember him now not very well because he was a eugenicist. He believed that along Darwinian principles in a way that the majority of traits are hereditary and that the reason that, for instance, he was as prodigious as he was was because he was born into a family of prodigious people and these traits were being passed through generations and that if we could find people who had greatness in their family and encourage them to breed, that we could somehow build a race of brilliant people, brilliant, beautiful people, and that if we discouraged other people who had traits that he thought of as negative from breeding, that we could somehow remove them over time from the population. And that was the basis for eugenics. We know scientifically that doesn't make any sense because heritability doesn't work in that simplistic way. We know, for instance, that great exceptional people often emerged from quite ordinary families. And the reason for that is Galton's own idea, regression to the mean, (laughs) because most of us sit in the middle and two brilliant parents are likely to have a kid that might be a little more brilliant than average, but more likely they will regress to the mean. So they will be a little bit less brilliant than them. But eugenics was so popular at the time, not just with people like Galton, who was a racist and who was a sexist, is undeniable, but was also popular on the left and among socialists and progressives. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's one of the striking things about this particular part of the story is that racism, which, you know, for good or ill, we tend to associate with the far right at the moment, was actually 
at least in its eugenic form, a very progressive movement, wasn't it? This was about, in theory, this was about improving society, improving human stock, making a better world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And th this, they thought, was a kind of technical way of achieving that, a magic fix, if you like. Early British eugenics was less about race, though, than it was about class. So in the very early days, what you saw was the demonisation of those people right at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder who were sometimes described as the residuum. So the very poorest were poor because they had genetic qualities that made them poor over generations, that they were more criminally inclined, that they were less intelligent, that they were indigent, that, you know, they had this kind of complex of problems that meant that they shouldn't be encouraged to breed. And in fact, many of the early birth control pioneers, people like Marie Stopes and Margaret Sanger, were eugenicists. And part of the reason for their support for birth control was that they didn't want these people to breed. So what we see really from the origins is the biologization of culture, yeah. treating cultural, social issues as if they're innate, biological, hardwired issues. And I do want to come back to that. But before we do, it's important to tell the next part of the story, which, again, is one that people are familiar with. But it's also the part of the story which people often think is the end of the story which is Nazi eugenics, which mm. is so utterly horrific and so scandalises all moral opinion around the world that we assume that then there is a full stop to race, science and eugenics, and then we move on. But it doesn't quite work like that. No, it, it's not such a clean break, although it can feel like one when you're looking at, at history, because... It certainly was a wake-up call, what happened with the Holocaust. And we have to remember the Holocaust wasn't the first genocide of its kind. There were others. And it was almost like a crescendo building up of scientific data, of anthropological data, of a moral reckoning right throughout the early 20th century that by the end of the Second World War, it was impossible to ignore. It was very hard by then for eugenicists to make the claim that what they were doing was somehow a good thing. <laughs> and many people <laughs> retreated from it, um, walked away from it. But they didn't let go of it completely. So even within academia, eugenics labs continued into the 60s and 70s. In parts of the world where eugenic policies were introduced around sterilisation, they were still sterilising people into the 1970s. And there are people alive today who have lived with the consequences of those policies in certain parts of the world. So we have to remember that that ideology was very sticky. And I think the reason it was sticky is because, as you say, we find it hard not to naturalise inequality. We look at disparities in the world and the easy, lazy explanation is this is just because we're different as groups, you know, whether that is gender inequality or racial inequality or whatever kind of inequality. We are just different as people. And people still do that now in the 21st century. They still mm. want to be able to make those claims. Mm. The language changes a bit after the Second World War, doesn't it? People don't talk about eugenics as much, they don't talk about race as much, but they perhaps talk about population or genetics as a proxy. Mm. I guess this is an important point because obviously population studies and genetic studies are wholly legitimate academic areas, mm. but there's a sense that at the edges they can bleed into what was race science. Yes, I think it's murkier than some geneticists would like to admit these days. Many eugenics labs became genetics labs in the decades after the Second World War. There were some 
eugenicist who segued into genetics. One of the characters that I write about in Superior is Ottmar von Verschuer, who was a Nazi race scientist. He carried out experiments on body parts sent to him by Joseph Mengele from the concentration camps, some of them of children. He was clearly intimately tied up with the regime and propping up the regime, not just with his scientific work, but also ideologically. After the war, he was temporarily banned from teaching, and then he became a professor of genetics, you know, mm. when he came back. So it's complex. Mm. It's nonetheless true, I think I'm right in saying, though, that even though race science persists in the post-war period, it is politically, at least, very much out of favour. Until perhaps towards the end of the century, where decoding the human genome and applying genetics increasingly to our understanding of human nature and behaviour almost returns us back to this fundamental theme of the biologization of nature. And there is a sense that, I mean, your book is called The Return of Race Science. In one sense, as you say, it never went away in, entirely. But you come away with a palpable sense that the last generation or two, it's more prevalent than it was, say, for the 30 or 40 years before that. Yeah, I think these ideas wax and wane. And at the moment, we're seeing a period where they're very popular online. And they've become woven into certain nationalist and especially ethnic nationalist ideologies around the world. So there are political actors out there who desperately scour scientific data, journal articles, looking for anything that might support their idea that we can explain world history using this idea of biological race, that there is such a thing as white superiority or whatever kind of ethnic superiority that they're looking for, and trying to feed their origin stories, not unlike the way the Nazis did in Germany when they tried to define a Germanic race that was somehow better than everybody else, you know, tying blood and soil in that way. People are still doing that now. I don't know why that is, because on the one hand, the huge conclusion of genetics and genomics over the last 70 years has been increasingly that we are definitely, without a doubt, one human species, that all human beings who live outside Africa are products of that out-of-Africa expansion, that we were always moving, always mixing, and even communities that we think of as very isolated and perhaps genetically different in some way are actually not as different as we think. We are more homogeneous than any other species. Uh, than any other primate species, I should say. So chimpanzees show more genetic diversity than we do. And yet, at the same time, within that project, people keep injecting race into it. Mm. If you look at the Human Genome Project, there are these attempts to look for isolated populations around the world that might be genetically unique in some way, that can give some insights into human variation, where we might be able to find these unique genes. And they haven't found them. There are mm. no genes unique to any population. There's an important subplot in all this, which is the question of authority. Mm. It does strike me that in the contemporary world, science, for lots of very good reasons, has an unassailable authority. Mm. And we only have to look at what's happened in the last 12 months or so. We will follow the science, was, was the political <laughs> mantra, because that's a much safer thing to do. And in many ways, if you're dealing with a pandemic, it's a very sensible thing to do. Mm. But if you treat science, in this case genetics, as singularly authoritative, you instinctively go to it to explain things that actually aren't genetic or scientific differences. Mm -hmm. 
Well, the problem is when people say we are following the science or, you know, we're using facts here, um, the facts, number one, have always been loaded with politics to begin with for the reasons I've just explained. To imagine Mm. that in the 19th century they were making mistakes that we couldn't possibly make now is just ridiculous because we still live in a racist society. We still live in a sexist society. We still live in a classist society. And scientists are still human as they were in the 19th century. So they're all going to still be affected by that. And while there are safeguards in place, there is an understanding of how bias and prejudice work. It still plays out in the way that research is published. You only need to go to the website Retraction Watch, which is a kind of catalogue of papers that have been retracted from academic journals to see how many of those were racially motivated or motivated by some kind of sexist or misogynistic views. So there are mechanisms and sometimes I think forces at work within the sciences, I suspect sometimes trying to keep these ideas alive, even Mm. when they know that the data is not in their favour, even when they know the facts aren't there. And that's the thing we have to be careful of when we talk about being led by the science, Mm. being dictated by the science. Which science are you talking about? The challenge as well, though, of course, is that it's blurry, isn't it? But I was really struck by a couple of the people you write about, Luigi Cavillas-Vorza and, and David Reich, who are very, very serious scientists, very, very serious geneticists, anti-racists. Mm. Clearly, Luigi Cavillas-Vorza, actively anti-racist. Yeah. And yet, you come away thinking, nonetheless, there is a fear that people with racist agendas might still use the work they've done. And you say at one point, racists will find validation wherever they can. And that's part of the problem, isn't it? That if they are willing to seize on genuine, serious, objective scientific research, it casts a shadow or risks casting a shadow on everything. Yes, and and scientists would say, you know, it is perfectly valid to study genetic human variation and why shouldn't we do it? It's not an inherently racist enterprise to do that. And what I would say is, yeah, that's fair, but it's the narrative around this that's the issue. You know, when Cavalli Schwarzer, who was probably the most important figure in the field of population genetics and also a hugely important figure in anti-racism within academia... When he worked so hard to look in the margins of our genome for human difference, when he hunted so hard for populations around the world that would prove that there are deep and meaningful differences there, what narrative was he being driven by? It wasn't necessarily the narrative that we are one human species and the differences are negligible and meaningless. It was quite the opposite. And that is what gets seized upon. So there is a tension here. You know, how do we study human difference without falling into the trap of making it look like those differences are really important and meaningful and they could explain the way racists would like it to explain some bigger social reality about the world or explain politics in some way. It's really hard. And I see Mm. that tension. I I try to communicate that tension. And Mm. what I worry about is that in the same way that in my previous book, Inferior, where I was looking at sexist science, how some ideas became orthodoxical in science despite being patently untrue. You know, for example, the idea that women are less intelligent than men because not enough people were there to challenge them because of the lack of representation within the sciences. Mm. So often when I have these debates with other scientists or when I'm interviewing other scientists, they are all white men. And I'm not saying that if you're a white man, you can't think about these things in a broader way. Of course you can. And I, and I know many race scholars who do, who are white men, who think about these 
in a completely different way from the way that others do. But when you have such a demographically skewed science, as we do, academia in the West is so demographically skewed in every possible way, then the politics that comes into it is going to be affected by that in the same way as it was in the 19th century. There's a delightful irony here, which is that in the field of biblical hermeneutics, so the study of scripture text, it's become very clearly recognised in the last 50 years or so mm-hmm. that if it is only being done by people of a particular ethnic group or mm-hmm. socioeconomic status or let alone theological position, mm-hmm. you're going to get a kind of a very focused, narrow, almost blinkered interpretation of the text. And mm-hmm. it's absolutely critical to get different perspectives from different mm-hmm. people in different parts of the world and different traditions on the same text because they will have different perspectives yeah. which prevent that narrow biased approach. There's a delightful mm. irony, I think, in the scientific approach and the approach to biblical hermeneutics being actually very shared in that regard. Yeah. I think it's the illusion of objectivity that makes scientists think it doesn't matter what their background is when they're doing their research. Of course it matters. It has always mattered. And that's why science has made mistakes in the past, because it matters. Mm. So I think we have to recognise that, number one. I'm sometimes quite frustrated at geneticists of just one particular group debating among themselves about race and leaving scholars of colour out of that debate and thinking that they can have this conversation among themselves and that will be enough. This has real-world implications. Mm. This is not just some kind of ivory tower question. This has real-world implications for all of us. It hits us. Right at the beginning of my introduction, I put race in inverted commas, and it's important to do that because one of the really clear messages from the book is that we treat race and scientists have treated race as if it is a self-evident entity. And it most certainly isn't. There is so much more genetic diversity within quote-unquote races than between them. So tell us in a sense what's left of the idea of race or what actually is race in the light of what we now know about genetics. Well, it's almost universally accepted that race is a social construct within mainstream academia, and that's across disciplines. But just because it is a social construct, that doesn't mean it doesn't have real-world implications or biological implications. We've seen in the last year with the COVID-19 pandemic that race has an impact on your health. In the US, to be a black American, your life expectancy is significantly lower than that of a white American. Black Americans die of almost everything, including infant mortality, at greater rates than everybody else. So that social experience of being in the world of the structural factors, the systemic factors, the everyday mistreatment, where you are likely to live, what your diet is likely to look like because of your perceived race, the social perception of your race, has an impact on your body, on your mind, in so many different ways. You know, one of the interesting things I read about when I was researching Superior is that in the early 20th century, Ottmar von Verschuer was working in these uh, mental institutions. And what he observed was that Jewish people in these hospitals had very high rates of schizophrenia. And he then, at that time, characterised schizophrenia as a Jewish condition. This is a Jewish condition, unique to these people. And today, what we see in some circles, there's been a tendency to describe schizophrenia as a black condition, because it's seen so often among black Britons, or it's diagnosed so much as a black condition. There are some heritable components scientists have realised to schizophrenia, but 
they are so heavily outweighed by all the environmental and social factors that lead to a diagnosis. You can be, to some extent, biologically predisposed to have a condition and it may never appear because the social circumstances never allow it to appear. And these are the things I think we have to be careful of is how the boundaries of race seem to shift over time and who we vilify and who we demean and dehumanise changes over time based on the politics. And that also seeps into biology. Like with Neanderthals, I love the detail in your book about how for 120, 30 years, Neanderthals are these basic, stupid, knuckle-dragging monsters. <laughs> and then we discover they're related to Western Europeans. And all of a sudden, wow, actually, they were a bit more sophisticated than we gave them credit for. <laughs> we still have loads of research to do on Neanderthals. We know practically nothing, at least that's what I was told by a researcher. But we all may have, every person may have some degree of Neanderthal ancestry in them. You have to be very careful of the language you use. But what it essentially means is that very long ago, modern humans bred with other human species. And we didn't realise that for a very long time. But when we started to realise it, you can see a palpable change in the way that Neanderthals are described when we know that people of European ancestry have a degree of Neanderthal ancestry, that suddenly they are gentle, they are human like us. You know, they didn't die out because they were stupid, they died out for some other reason. Mm. <laughs> the terms all change. Neanderthals begin to be drawn into the circle of humanity mm. when 150 years ago, when they were outside the circle of humanity, they were used as a justification for drawing living modern humans, including Aboriginal Australians, out of that circle. We're drawing towards the end of our conversation. I want to widen the camera lens a little bit in our last few minutes together and, and draw in two wider questions, really. One is around determinism and the other is around identity. So they're, they're big questions to deal with in a few minutes. People used to think that materialism meant determinism, and that was actually one of the things that people were concerned about. If you reduce people to a purely material basis, you're removing morality because we're deterministic and there's no free will and so on and so forth. But it seems to me, reading from your book, that actually that is completely wrong. Everything we do has a genetic basis. We are genetic beings. And yet the complexity with which our nature develops from the drawing of so many different genes and is triggered by so many different environmental considerations means that the historic link between a material basis to human nature and a deterministic fear mm. of our human nature is almost completely broken by genetics. I think we need to stop thinking about genomes as blueprints for who we are. Genes are just one element in the people that we become and they are not fully deterministic. They can determine certain things, but not others. And genes can be switched off or switched on during development, which explains why identical twins who are genetically identical can be so different from each other. There are so many factors, random factors that play out in the process of development, not to mention, as I say, the interplay of the environment and culture with our biology that can also lead to huge effects, which play out in racism and health. We can see that for ourselves. There are so many books, for instance, that try to pin down what human nature is. Who are we deep down and how should we be living based on what our basic human nature is? And it's really hard to pin down. It's like jelly. It's always changing. And I wonder if that's because you only have to look around the world right throughout history to see the bazillions of different ways in which humans have lived, all these different permutations, to know that there isn't one set 
blueprint for how we are or one set of social behaviours that we necessarily follow. Whatever categories we have, all categories are fraught in some way. They're all fuzzy in some way. And we're slowly starting to unlearn the kind of rigid ways in which we have been told we have to behave because of social hierarchy and because of power for hundreds of years and starting to think, well, if we are free to live how we want, then how can we look? Mm. There is a catch-22 there, though, isn't there? Because, in a sense, the world is continuous, if we can put it this way. There are very few natural classes and categories within the world, but language is the process of categorization. Words are categories in themselves. And so just by being a speaking species... You are categorising the world. The challenge is speech, as one of the other interviewees in this series we talked about, speech is so characteristic of us as a species and it's absolutely invaluable to our navigation of the world. And yet it is inherently in some senses limited because it's predicated on categorising the world in a way that actually isn't fully reflective of the world's continuous nature. Yeah, I think that's true. But it depends which language you're talking about. So, for example, I speak Hindi and there are metaphors within Hindi that describe certain stages of life or certain categories that seem more solid in the English language than they do because they are metaphors rather than hard words. So, for example, the Hindi word for dusk is under. And middle age, the word is underi. So this is the dusk of your life. And it's a really nice metaphor because it kind of captures what middle age (laughs) means in the human journey in a kind of loose way. It's so much more nuanced and careful and more full of possibility than the word middle age. Mm. And I think it is possible through linguistic metaphor and just by opening up those parameters a bit and opening up the narratives around language to think in more fluid ways. And if we realise that actually the majority of what we said we're speaking metaphorically rather than some narrow, literalist, positivist sense, we might hold our language a bit more loosely. Let me end just asking a little bit about identity. You say right at the end, or near the end of the book, we are social beings, not just biological ones. It seems to me that so much of the problem in this debate comes from a desire, we've just talked about, to categorise definitively and also to categorise on biological basis definitively. There's a line in the New Testament when St Paul says to his audience, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor neither slave nor free, neither female nor male, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the, what he's talking about there is you need to recognise there are categories, you know, you might be male or female, you might be a Jew or slave, but if you accord final and ultimate significance to that particular category, Mm. then you're going to be divided, then the world is going to be divided. It does seem to resonate with what you're talking about, about the fact that we are biological beings, but Mm. if we identify ourselves categorically as biological beings, Mm. we are going to end up in a hugely divided and divisive culture. Yeah, and in fact, that's closer to my philosophy. It's quite an old-fashioned idea these days, but when I was growing up at school, we would often be told we are one race. We are all the same underneath, colour is superficial, it doesn't mean anything. And actually, that's pretty much true. Biologically, that's pretty much the case. And I wonder, I'm in favour of identity politics. I think we need it in order to fight for our rights and highlight issues of oppression out there in society. But one of the limitations is that we start to retreat into these identities. They start to become reified. And we lose sight sometimes of the fact that we are all just one 
we're all in this together. We're all part of this journey and we all experience pain. We can empathise with each other because of that pain that so many of us have been through in all its different forms. And we have to cling, I think, to that idea because if we don't, then, like you say, we do become divisive and it does break, it pits groups against each other. So for me, the most important thing, whether you're an anti-racist or a feminist or you're fighting social justice on all those different fronts, is that you cannot fight for one person's rights and ignore everybody else's. When I fight against racism, I'm also fighting for everybody else. And if I'm not, then I'm not really fighting racism. The book is called Superior, The Return of Race Science. Angela, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Next week, I'll be talking to John Gray about cats and the meaning of life. Reading Our Times comes to you from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Abby Allison, Lizzie Harvey, Pete Whitehead and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast.